0: I'm going to read now from Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 2. If you've got a Bible uh, on the chair there, it's, oh, I don't know what page it's on. I'll tell you a moment, Matthew, Mark. It's a New Testament, Mark chapter 2, page 837. If you want to follow along, um, but do feel free just to, just to listen. Page 837. And we're reading this account. Uh, by Mark of the life of Jesus. Mark was a a friend, a colleague of uh, the disciple Peter. So in many ways, Mark's gospel is is kind of Peter's gospel, uh, written somewhere like sort of 15, maybe 20 years after uh, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And we're pretty early on in the story. Um, Jesus' early 30s, his public ministry has more or less just begun. uh, And I'm going to read from verse one of chapter two. So big number two there is a chapter and the start of that chapter. And when he, that's Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they couldn't get near him because of the crowd, And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the lake and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. but sinners. Let me pray once more for God's help as we look at this part of his word. Father God, your word is a, a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. And We pray today you would shine that lamp in order that we might know ourselves better, but even more, that we might know you better, particularly as you revealed yourself in your son Jesus. Pour your spirit on us again. Uh, That we might hear his word with joy. If we ask in his name, Amen. Well, welcome to to week two of this series, Encounters with God. What's it like to meet God? That's a question we're asking over these four weeks. And last week, I began by saying that as you go on in life, one of the things you realize is that people are a lot more similar under the skin than they might at first appear. There is lots that we have in common. Wherever we're from, in terms of nation and language and skin colour and all the rest of it, wherever we're from in terms of, kind of social class, wealth, uh, whether we left school at 8, 11, 16, 21, whether we're still there now studying to our third PhD, under the skin we are so alike. And one of the things that, that we all have in common uh, is this bag that we drag behind us. Not a real bag obviously children talking about a real bag but but all of us have this kind of this sack over our shoulder a kind of shadowy dark bag in which is all sorts of things that we are deeply ashamed of things that we hope no one will ever find out about things that make us feel guilty often in that bag are, are things we've done or said or felt that no one else knows about we, we we try and let the string on the bag out further and further, the rope out further and further, so that, that no one ever sort of associates those things with us. But we know they're there. We know what we're really like. And so our question today, in terms of what's it like to meet God, it is focusing a bit more narrowly than it was last week. Last week was just a, a general question what's it like to meet God? But this week, I, I want to ask the question what's it like to meet God with my history? with all the stuff that's in that bag. Now, it might be for you that that bag contains some really pretty horrific stuff, a stuff that you're confident, should your course mates or colleagues or family or spouse find out about, they'd be utterly horrified. It might be that bag just contains, well, nothing kind of criminal, but a coldness to God, a disinterest in, in him, a lack of love for others. But it is there. All of us have things that we know deep down, we are guilty of. And we deeply fear that, that when God sees it, we're in deep trouble. And this passage this morning, this story of Jesus, is immensely good news. really want to, oh, it's a privilege to, be able to talk to you this morning about it. And really I do want to say one thing, or one main thing, and that is that, that your greatest need, your greatest need this morning, is actually God's greatest concern. Your greatest need is his greatest concern, his greatest interest, if you like. So let's think about your your greatest need. What is your greatest need here this morning? If we look at the story, uh, these four friends and their their paralyzed fifth friend had a very obvious need, didn't didn't they? See how the story goes. Jesus is in Capernaum, this small town uh, in Israel back in the first century, And verse 2, he's teaching, and and he's so popular, he's such a great preacher, that the the, the, the room is crowded. Imagine this room, and just stuffed full with people. Um, We had to get rid of the seats, everyone's standing up, he's sort of crammed in the corner, stood on a chair trying to preach, and there is no room. People are looking in the windows, they're kind of climbing the trees and and peering through the balcony there. There is absolutely no space. And one of the things that that has attracted people to him is, is not just his amazing teaching, but the fact that already in his ministry, he's done miraculous things. Um, The sick have been made better. The blind can see. And so understandably, these four friends think, now's our chance. The greatest doctor the world has ever seen is in town. And if we can just get our friend to Jesus, well, everything will be okay. And so in verse 3, we we read about this paralysed man. Uh, Children, a paralysed man can't walk. So if you're paralysed, he's utterly helpless. He's having to lie on this mat and be carried everywhere by his friends. But when they come to the house, what's the problem? Well, they can't get in. There's just, the crowds are too big. And so what do they do? Well, they scooch up onto the roof. Houses in, in the Middle East tend to have flat roofs. Uh, bash a hole and lower him down. Uh, you can feel the desperation, can't you? You've got to be pretty desperate to destroy someone's property uh, in order to get to Jesus. You can feel it, kind of. Just, just as those of parents, uh, you who are parents, imagine having a, a, f- a, you know, a fatally sick child and knowing that there, there was a room somewhere in Leeds that had the medicine that would cure them and a doctor who could administer it. But, but coming to that room and finding that actually it's just blocked, you can't get in, there are barriers and police outside, and you would do anything to get into that room, wouldn't you, to save your child's life, to get to that medicine, to get to that doctor, if I need to push over a policeman, I'm going to do it. I know I'm going to get in trouble later, but I'm going to do it because I'm desperate. If I need to smash a window, I'm going to do it. Because it is so important. That, that is the kind of passion these people feel. This man is paralysed. There's no social services in, in first century Israel. There's nowhere this guy earning money. No social workers. No allowance. Uh, no crutches, no wheelchairs. Frankly, no Doctors really not who could do any serious, uh, any sorry, give any serious treatment to a paralyzed man. And yet, here is Jesus, who seems to be able to do these miracles. You feel that desperation. Finally, this man will be able to walk. He'll be able to earn money. He'll be able to socialise. He'll be able to come to the synagogue, come round for dinner. His life will be revolutionised. Jesus can do it. They lower him down. Jesus looks at him. Here's the big moment, and he says, "Son, you're forgiven." crushing, wasn't it? They must have been absolutely broken. You can almost see them up on the roof, kind of peering down. Here it is. Our friend's going to jump up. It'll just take a word or a touch and he'll go skipping out the door and Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. How cruel is Jesus? How cruel is Jesus to see someone in such obvious physical discomfort and pain, such obvious physical need, Ignore it and say, son, your sins are forgiven. Come on, Jesus. You can see what the real problem is. Deal with your funny spiritual stuff later, but there is a serious problem, a real world problem, a pressing problem, a real life problem. And that is paralysis. Deal with that. We've all got needs, haven't we? And I suspect we're not that different from the friends or perhaps even the man himself. Probably not paralysed, many of us, although there may well be folk here who've got pretty serious health problems, physical, mental, uh, spiritual. But all of us have needs. If I was to ask you, what is it you could really do with now? what, What would really help in life? So honestly, not, not giving the, the right answer in a Bible study group, but what I really need now. Uh, what is it if God really loved you, really cared about you specifically, not this kind of general idea that God is love, and, but specifically if he loved you, what is it that he would actually do for you? How would he show that? How would he demonstrate it? I'm sure it would be a, a better husband or, or wife, more obedient kids. Surely it would be a job that I've needed for ages. Surely it would be a, a, a partner, someone to love. Surely it would be a, a house that doesn't leak. Surely it would, well, fill in the blank. Or perhaps, actually, you're here this morning thinking, "Do you know what? I'm kind of okay. I don't really need too much. I have no massive needs. I've got a house." Got some food, got some friends, got a family, work's okay. I don't massively need anything. i can to think of a few things I like, but it's okay. Well, whether you're, you're really conscious of pressing needs this morning, or whether actually you think life is going fine, Jesus says the same thing to you. And that is this. I know your greatest need. I know it. And it is the forgiveness of your sin. That is your greatest need. You might not know it, but I do. It's the forgiveness of your sins. And of course, we don't believe him. Because everything else feels so real, so pressing, so important, so so tangible. But he's right. Of course he is. What is sin? Well, sin is it's really a kind of attitude of the heart. It's this idea of rejecting God. It's seen in what we do, certainly, but also how we think and how we feel. We, we were made to be sort of orientated towards Him, to, to be living, looking up to Him, receiving from Him, living for Him, living under His smile, smiling back at Him, loving Him and loving our neighbour. The world was meant to be a beautiful place. But we turn from Him, we're disinterested in Him. And that works out in how we live, feel, and speak. It is sin that fills that invisible bag that we drag behind us, that dark, shadowy bag that we hope never gets opened and never gets revealed. And it's true of all of us. It's true of every one of us here this morning, me as much as any. And it's serious. It's a serious problem. It's got to be serious, hasn't it? If Jesus thinks it's more important than paralysis, it's got to be serious. Sin has to be more dangerous than paralysis. Sin has to be more damaging than paralysis of course it is elsewhere in the Bible We read the wages of sin is death sin this turning our back on God ultimately leads to to death that is both um, a sort of an ongoing death now you know the way that we slowly kind of destroy ourselves by, by turning from God life slowly falls apart But more seriously, it is that the death that will come when we finally die physically and go and face him. If we've never found forgiveness, if we haven't had Jesus forgive our sins. Then God does warn us that we will get what we've always desired. We will be cast from his presence, at least from his presence as a God who's good to us. And we'll spend eternity in hell under his anger. Sin leads to death that's why it's so serious. It's so striking, isn't it? In the face of a paralyzed man, Jesus can say, your sins are forgiven. Jesus sees the greatest need. Uh, perhaps you, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here this morning. Uh, in which case, uh, it's so great to have you with us. Like, I really hope each week we have people coming along who, who are frankly... Um, uh, whether some confused or just a little bit interested or even outright hostile to the Christian faith, we hope you feel you, know, you can come along on a Sunday. Uh, often it's, it's, um, it's the case that the people who are looking at Christianity for the first time, or at least the first time as a kind of adult at least, think that Jesus, well, surely he's just one of those good teachers from history. There's a few of them, and there's Moses and perhaps we're into Gandhi or whoever it might be, but Jesus is in that kind of lineage, good, wise, religious men. But how can he be if he acts like this? I don't know who, you, who your sort of stereotypical kind person would be. I mean, Mother Teresa, maybe she's, well, she died now, hasn't she? But kind of generation too old. But whoever your kind of, your stereotypical kind person would be, can you imagine the kindest friend you know, if they had the ability to, to, to bring life to a paralyzed man, looking at them and, and not doing it? And that, that's what Jesus does this morning. He can't just be a good man. Unless you know something, we don't. Which is that sin is our greatest enemy. Sin is your greatest problem this morning, and part of the part of the power of sin and the problem with it is that it convinces you that it isn't your worst problem. Part of what sin does is blind us to the truth. We we think of sin as just sort of bad things we do, but actually, it's sort of it's like a clogging up of the of the brain almost. So we don't realise we've got a problem, a fogging of the mirror. And that's why we need Jesus to speak to us this morning with, if you like, the sort of shock and awe tactics of this passage and say, look, in the face of a paralysed man, I can still say sin is his biggest problem. You may not see it, but hear it from me, says Jesus. I know your greatest need. It's not something or someone out there. That's how we tend to think, isn't it? The problems I need dealing with, there are people, Or others. No, it's within you. Jesus knows forgiveness is your greatest need. And he's so determined to achieve that, eventually it will cost him his life. Remember, the wages of sin is death. Sin leads to death. It's Jesus' death or it's yours. But he's so committed to your forgiveness, that he eventually will go to the cross and die in order that we might not have to. And so Jesus' prime mission on earth was not the preaching or the healing. They were all pointing to something much bigger. He came to forgive sin. And that therefore is what he's saying to you this morning, as much as he's saying to the paralyzed man. 2,000 or so years ago, I will forgive your sin if you'll come to me. I will forgive you. And the religious leaders of the day, they understand what the implications of what Jesus is saying. Do you see that? Down in verse 6. Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? The scribes are the kind of religious officials. What's their problem? They say Jesus is blaspheming. What does that mean? Well, he's, he's claiming to be able to do something that only God can do. The logic is right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Only God can forgive sin because sin is against God. Remember, as I was saying earlier, sin is this kind of rejection of God, this heart attitude that says, No, I'm not interested in you. I'm going to live for myself. In the same way that if I come and, and rob you, steal your wallet, okay, it wouldn't be okay for your friend to come up after him and say, Oh, I forgive you, John T. You're like, no, no, just a minute. It's me he's attacked, it's me he's robbed. Well, similarly, sin is first and foremost against God. And so Jesus turning up and saying, I forgive your sin, well, it's a claim. It's a claim to be God. It's one of the places, many places actually, where Jesus makes clear he knows who he is, God in the flesh. So in that sense, these scribes, these religious leaders are right. Only God can forgive sin. But they're also so wrong in that they fail to realise that Jesus is God. God. And so you get the question. It's a strange one, isn't it? What do you think the answer is? Uh, verse eight. Or oh, sorry, verse nine. Jesus says back to them, which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your bed and walk? Which is easier to say? Well, it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, isn't it? Imagine someone came in this morning in a wheelchair. What would it be easier for me to say to them? Oh, your sins are forgiven. Or get out of your wheelchair and walk home. Throw it away. Well, it'd be easier to say your sins are forgiven, isn't it? Because you, you can't prove it one way or another. You can't see it. Whereas if I say to someone in a wheelchair, oh, just get up and walk. You're healed. I've healed you. Well, then you're going to know straight away whether it's worked or not. And so it's as if Jesus is saying to the, the, the religious leaders, look, okay, you You want to know whether I've got the power to forgive sins, whether I've got the authority, whether I am God in the flesh? Watch this. So he turns to the paralyzed man and says, get up, rise up, take your mat and walk. And straight away, the guy does it. Jesus does the miracle to point to the fact that he's able to do the bigger thing, which is forgive sins. Can I heal paralyzed men, said Jesus? Yeah, of course I can. Child's play, boom, done. But remember, I'm about something more important than that forgiveness of your sins that's actually how the whole gospel works For now we can come to Jesus he won't be in the room will he okay you're not going to meet him physically walking around Leeds but you can come to him and say look forgive my sins Lord Jesus and he promises he will do he never turns away those who call on him those who ask you don't need to bring anything you don't need to do anything he will forgive you and then one day When he returns and the world is transformed, then he promises he'll get rid of all our diseases and one day we'll be transformed. That's the order. Forgiveness now, but you'll still have loads of problems. (laughs) Okay, If you limp before you're a Christian, you'll limp after you're a Christian. Cancer before you're a Christian, you'll probably have cancer after you're a Christian. There are no promises of total healing now. That comes the other side of death or the other tide of Jesus' return. In that sense, the paralytic is a model. Forgiven First. Uh, Raised up later, that's exactly what will happen to all those uh, who come to Jesus for forgiveness. But but either way, Jesus is showing, I am God, and I have come to forgive sins. The religious officials are right. Only God can forgive sins. But wrong in, in, in thinking that Jesus isn't God. And it's the fact that he is God that makes the second story we looked at so extraordinary. If that first story is all about our greatest need, your greatest need this morning, which is the forgiveness of your sins, the second story shows that your greatest need is Jesus' greatest concern. What he longs to do, in other words. What does God long to do for you this morning? It is forgive your sins. Do you see what happens? Here we have God in the flesh. God become man, Jesus. He goes out. He's teaching, and verse 14, he sees Levi sitting at a tax booth and says, follow me, and he rose and followed him. If anything, that is a more extraordinary story than the paralyzed man story. It doesn't strike us that way, does it? That that seems quite mundane. He says to a tax man, hey, follow me, and the guy does. All right, Jesus calls disciples, that seems to be what he does. But no, this is an extraordinary story. Um, Let's try and reset it. In in, in our era. Jesus is in Ukraine and he, he comes across a Ukrainian man. A Ukrainian man who has shown the Russian troops the way into his city in order that they might capture it. A Ukrainian man who now is working with the Russian overlords to raise tax from the Ukrainians, his own people, to pay the Russian troops. And a Ukrainian man who, by betraying his own people, Uh, by supplying cash and access to the the Russians, has himself made a fortune. Swimming pool, jacuzzi, 10-bed house, all by collaborating uh, with the occupiers. And Jesus comes up to that man and says, why don't you be one of my 12 disciples? Why don't I come around your house for dinner? Tax collectors, it wasn't just a a job like accountant, They were those who worked with the Roman conquering uh, authorities who'd conquered the people of Israel. They were were the scum of the earth. I don't know what kind of person in your head is the worst kind of person, but that is the kind of person that Levi would have been seen as. The head of the British Nationalist Party. The ultimate racist or the ultimate sexist or misogynist. Whatever it may be, whatever in your mind will be the kind of worst type of person, Jesus comes to him and says, "Yeah, you, why, why don't we go for dinner? Why don't you become one of the 12? In fact, this is Levi is Matthew. Uh, if you know the, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four Gospels, this is, um, this is Matthew by another name. So Jesus looks at the, the leader of the Al-Qaeda terror cell and says, come. Uh, the chair of Stonewall and says, come. Come, come be my disciple. And, and remember who Jesus is, let's strengthen that. God looks at the leader of the terror cell and says, come. God looks at the conquering Russian and says, come, come, find forgiveness. Come, be one of my children, one of my disciples. Not Sort yourself out, stop this nonsense, then come back to me when you've got your house in order, and then I'll think about taking you, but just come now. In fact, it's even stronger, isn't it? Verse 15. It's not just come follow me, but let's have a drink. Fancy a meal? Let's go for a pizza, a coffee. I'll come around to yours for a glass of wine. Bring your friends. Bring those other collaborators. I see you've got a whole cell of Ukrainians who, who've helped the Russians conquer your city. Why don't we all hang out? Bring the prostitutes, the sex traffickers, the drug addicts. Get them all round. God's in town. You see, it is an even more extraordinary story than the paralyzed man. It shows us what God wants to do. He wants to eat with sinners. Not just forgive them and allow them to kind of sneak in the back door of his kingdom. Not just forgive them, but then sort of hold it over them for the rest of their lives. Kind of, I remember what you did. But he actually wants to come and eat with us. He wants to come to your house and feast with you sit with you Uh, with total scumbags like you and me. That is what God is like. Uh, What's it like to meet God with your history, with that, that invisible bag, that horrible shadow that drags behind you? What if you just drag it to Jesus? What's it like to meet him? Oh, it's wonderful. Because he doesn't turn you away. He doesn't reach for the bag and pour it out in public. He doesn't start naming and shaming everything you've done. What with this? The way you've used your body? The things you've said? The stuff you've looked at? The stuff you've done? No. It's gone. He welcomes you. What's it like to meet God with your history? Well, are you a collaborator? Have you welcomed in an invading power, betrayed your own people, made yourself a fortune out of it? If so, God says, welcome. Are you a prostitute? Uh, When Jesus is accused of eating with tax collectors and sinners, sinners is quite likely a kind of code word for prostitutes. Are you a prostitute? Perhaps you've not taken money. Perhaps you've just used your body to, to win affection or love or romance acceptance, escape from the mundane, uh, mundanity of life, whatever it might be. What does God say to you? Welcome. Can I come and eat with you? I'll forgive you. Let's sit, eat, drink. So that is what he is saying to you this morning. Whatever it, whatever it is you've said, done, or thought, whatever is in that bag, uh, all he acknowledges, oh, sorry, all he wants is the acknowledgement that you need Forgiveness. That's all God asks for you. There's no pass mark. There's no strength of feeling of love towards him you need to bring before you're allowed to come. There's no strength of hatred for your sin you need to bring before he'll welcome you. Sometimes, I think, Christians, we we get into that pattern, don't we? We think, well, I'm not sure I really hate my sin enough. No, you don't. (laughs) Have I repented hard enough? Have I turned from sin thoroughly, 100%? No, you haven't. No, you never will do until you die. But that is part of what God forgives, your lack of repentance. Repentance is saying, I I can't do this on my own. I need forgiveness. It's not something we bring as our little sort of token to chip in. In fact, the only group that won't be forgiven, well, they're down there in the passage. Do you see them? There's one group. The Pharisees, verse 16. The Pharisees, or the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And just look at Jesus' reply. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I'm like a doctor, says Jesus. Children, physician is a doctor. Who goes to the doctor? I say sick people go to the doctor. Well, that's not really true, is it? People, the only people who go to the doctor are people who know they're sick. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying there are two groups of people in the world. Some are righteous. They're totally fine on their own. They're good enough to go to heaven. Give the goodies. That's what we do. We split the world into goodies and baddies. And some of us, we think we're on the good half of the list. Uh, you know, my, I'm not so bad. I'm no Levi. I'm no prostitute. I'm no tax collector. I'm fine. I'll be all right on my own. That's what the Pharisees thought. And they would never come for forgiveness. But Jesus knows that deep down we are all sinners. That last sentence, I came not to call the righteous but sinners, is ironic. You're all sinners. And as long as you acknowledge it, he will have you. Perhaps the very sin you need to repent of, or the very sin you need to be forgiven rather, is the sin of thinking you're all right on your own. That you don't need God. I was a good, upstanding little boy going through school. Um, didn't get in trouble. I only once got a blue ticket, which was the kind of naughty ticket you got when you were bad at, at school. And I was totally crushed by it. Uh, when I left my, my middle school at age 13, we were given a, you know, at school assembly, we were given little Bibles. It wasn't, wasn't a Christian school, but I don't know why some Christian came in, probably bothering us. Um, and one of, my, um, uh, one of my school teachers, who, who, who must have been a Christian, although I wouldn't have understood that at the time, I wrote a, a little verse in it that was all about Jesus. Uh, all about how Jesus is good and upright, in him was found no sin. And he just wrote that verse in the Bible, you know, good and upright, in him was no sin. I thought, was a lovely thing to write about me. I just got no idea it was about Jesus. I just thought I was a good person. Why, you know, why would I need forgiveness? That's because I was a little 13-year-old Pharisee. It takes a long time to recover. That's our thank God, Jesus will forgive too. So at the end of the day, it is your history that will keep you away from Jesus. It is your history that will keep you away from Jesus. Or rather, your view of your history. But it's not your history of being bad or immoral or whatever it might be. Rather, the only thing that will keep you away from Jesus is if you look at your history and think, there's no problem here. I'm okay. But if you look both back back, and frankly, at yourself, even this morning, and see, see so much that needs changing, forgiving, Such half-heartedness in your love for other people and your love for God. Such self-righteousness. Uh, then just come, and he'll forgive you. He'll forgive you for the hundredth time, the thousandth time. come messy, come guilty. Come empty-handed, don't and bargain. Come weak, come straight away. Because his greatest desire is to forgive you. Your greatest need is God's greatest desire. Your greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. And God's greatest commitment here, as we see in this passage, is to forgive you, to reconcile with you, to befriend you, to sit, drink, and eat with you. That is the great promise of heaven. It's available to you, This morning, just come and ask. And he promises he will give. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are uh, the sick, not the healthy. We are the sinners, not the righteous. And so we praise you that you came to call the sick and the sinners, that you went to the Levi's, the betrayers, the sexually immoral. Uh, You went to those who would be seen as uh, the worst of society and sat and ate and drank with them. We praise that even when we don't see our greatest need, you do. So give us joyful hearts that are full of happiness that you've forgiven us that whatever else happens in our lives whatever paralysis we live with along the way would we know the joy that our sins are forgiven I pray for any this morning who uh, perhaps came into the room uh, still far from you and pray that you would give them that gift of forgiveness that they would know your call know your grace and mercy grow your kingdom and forgive our sins we ask empty handed for we ask in your own name Amen.